Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Even like doing stand-up early on, other comics sometimes would say to me, I would do some bit, I would talk about abortion or something like that in like Knoxville or something. And other comics would be like, I, I have no idea how you got away with that, you know, or whatever. And I was like... I literally think it's just because I sound like them. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's different. Like, if I was, like, some New York comic coming down here and talking about that, it would not fly. But it just plays differently when they kind of, like, I can tell immediately, like, all oh, this guy's, you know, one of us. Is this America? The land of the free and the home of the brave. Wake up, America. Wake up. The political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? Because it's not a matter of my liberation. It's also a matter of yours. If you're working, if we're working together, it's not because we're going to do something for the poor black people. We're going to do something for each other to save this really rather frightening world. Whatever our differences, we are fellow Americans. And please believe me when I say... No association has ever meant more to me than that. I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is the show where we're exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in such a divided country. Well, here we are, another election year, and it really just feels like, especially this year, we're just constantly talking at each other, we're talking over each other, we're talking about each other, we're not talking to each other. And that's really the point of this whole podcast. And if we don't agree with people, we do need to understand where they're coming from if we want to have a country that has any shot of working. That's really why I am excited about today's guest, His name is Trey Crowder. Uh, He's a writer. He's a comedian. Uh, You may know him online as the liberal redneck. What's so striking, though, is he's not running away from his Southern background, his Southern heritage. He's not trying to escape these stereotypes. In fact, he's defying the stereotypes in the way that he really shows that all Southerners don't think the same. You know, not all liberals have to sound a certain way. And if we listen to each other, you know, all of these politics come in different flavors from different places. And Trey is a straight white guy with a thick Southern accent. But in his videos, which go viral all the time, he's calling people out about racism, about sexism, about even, you know, transphobia. It just takes a lot of courage to speak your mind in the way that Trey does as you check out this episode, keen on a couple of things, if you will. Number one, he was inspired and learned how to frame his own videos by listening to people that he disagreed with. That was wanting to be in conversation and in debate with people he disagreed with that had him do what he's doing, had him step up, had him step out. There are liberals in the South, just like there are conservatives in the North. Even if 80% of people vote for Republicans in the state, that means 20% didn't. And we never hear from those folks. Trey is one of those folks. And the last thing about him is he speaks across these lines of difference in a way that at least stands a chance of resonating 
with his opponents. I mean, he, he gets away with a lot of stuff that other people can't get away with because he shares progressive ideas in the native tongue of the red states. You know, the twang, the metaphors, and it makes him more listenable, I think, across the board. You know, somebody who is defying expectations in the way that Trey does, that's what gives me hope. You, know, you just never know what's in somebody's heart until you have a real conversation. And so I'm excited for you to hear my real conversation with the ever-surprising Trey Crowder right after this break. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Trey Crowder. Finally, hey, got you on the podcast. Oh man, it's I'm thrilled to be here. Big fan. <laughs> well, well, you may not know this, but um, I'm actually also from rural Tennessee, from rural West Tennessee. I grew up in Jackson. Oh wow, no, I did not know that. I'll tell you what, I had literally the worst comedy set of my entire comedy <laughs> career in Jackson, Tennessee. <laughs> once <laughs> I'm not surprised. What happened? Oh, I was just. This was before. I had like gone viral, and so you know I was in complete obscurity. Nobody had any clue who I was, which was what I was used to. You know, I got up there, and they just weren't picking up what I was laying down at all, and that was <laughs> immediately apparent. And back then, I used to like sort of, if I was doing like a bar show or more rednecky type of crowd, because I came right. up doing shows all around the South and stuff. I had like. I had my more kind of liberal rednecky stuff, but then I also had your more general like relationship or talking about my papa or whatever type of thing. And I would kind of pick and choose depending on the crowd I was in front of. But that night when I realized they just weren't having it regardless, I just decided to go full bore like <laughs> liberal redneck and just start like trashing the Confederate flag and stuff like that. I was like, if you're going to hate me, you're going to get your hate money for worth real. of hatred, you know. And uh, yeah, it was 
kind of a nightmare, but also kind of fun, weirdly. So that's what I always think of when I hear Jackson. Sorry. Well, but I, I tell you, one reason I'm so excited to talk to you is, you know, growing up in the heartland, growing up on the edge of a small town in a, a red state as a progressive is a different thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you've sort of, you know, taken this stand that it's okay to be progressive and Southern. And um, I wanted to figure out how, how the heck did you uh, arrive at your, at your politics, at your, at your view, and, and talk a little bit about the town you grew up in. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about, about Jackson. You tell me a little bit about where you grew up. Well, I guess starting with the town to provide the context first, it's called Salina, Tennessee. It's in Clay County. It's kind of equidistant between Nashville and Knoxville on the Kentucky line. So it's like upper middle Tennessee. And it's extremely rural. It's like two and a half hours from any city that anybody's ever heard of. There's no, we don't have any Walmarts or McDonald's or traffic lights. I graduated (laughs) high school with like 68 people, which was, we were the biggest class our school had ever had. It's normally like in the mid forties as a graduating class. I mean, it's like really, really rural, extremely so. And for years up until the mid nineties, when I was about 10 years old, the beating heart of the town's economy was this big clothing factory. It was Oshkosh Bagosh factory. Remember, they make very you know cute little overalls for kids and tots. They make overalls for tots, that type of thing. And mm-hmm. uh, they had a factory in Salina. And most people worked at the factory. And then, like, my family was a bunch of, like, small business owners, mostly. Like, my maternal grandmother had a cafe, like a, you know, meeting meet two type of place on the square. My openly gay uncle who will factor more into this story in a minute had a (laughs) like a little deli like a sandwich shop on the square my grandpa had a car lot my dad had a video store crowder's video is a converted single wide trailer and that's where i got into all things show businessy you know and uh stuff like that and then in the mid 90s the factory left after NAFTA mm. and went to uh, Mexico and nothing else ever. And then there, there's another smaller factory that made like visors, some visors in cars called Crotty. And it also left. They left around the same time and mm. nothing ever really came in to replace them. So like when I was nine years old, all these family members had all these businesses, factories open. It was like kind of like a quaint little Southern town situation. By the time I was graduating high school, like 10 years later, the factory was gone also, luckily for us, in the same time, uh, opioids showed up. So the factory left and the pills came in at the same time. So by the time I graduated oh, high school, the factory's gone. All my family's businesses are either closed or on the way out. My mom is uh, addicted to pills and in and out of jail. Some of my family members have already OD'd. And that was the same story for a lot of other families around there. So it just got like absolutely ravaged and right. a fun little side note about that is <laughs> i say fun you know right yeah super <laughs> hysterical story so far but right uh clay county had traditionally been a blue county in most general elections for like uh clinton and gore and all that but then went hard for trump in the you know in 2016 in the primaries which was the first time that i noticed because it got covered on some regional news outlets because he carried clay county by like the largest margin of any in the primaries up until that point and that was the first time that my ears sort of perked up and i was like oh something's actually going on here you know what i mean yeah yeah so that's where i grew up yeah 
all this stuff is sort of abstract kind of talking point in the cable news world, you know, NAFTA, globalization, the Clintons, all this sort of stuff. And I just don't think that folks who are on the coast understand some of these dynamics, you know, some of the, the, the sense of just disenfranchisement, being left out, being left behind that, you know, those of us who I think grew up in the heartland uh, have some insight into. But what do you think is going on? I mean, why do you think that, that the folks went for Trump instead of somebody else in 2016? Like, I understand why they were receptive to a lot of his like sort of promises about like, you know, going to Mexico and bringing your jobs back and making them pay and all that type of stuff, you know. But of course, my whole thing the whole time was like, but he's not going to actually do any of that. Like, I can't believe you believe it. He's saying what you want to hear. And I get that. But it's wild to me that you actually believe it, especially coming from him. I don't think I know that before he got so politically charged, obviously, when he was just Donald Trump, the reality show, you know, buffoon guy, he represented like everything that they reviled in a person. He was like a silver spoon, blue blood Yankee who thought he was better than everybody else and needed his ass whipped. You know what I mean? Like he was that type of guy. So it was always, it was wild to me. Like I was as blindsided as anybody because I just couldn't believe I was like, this guy is the champion of, of, of the Southern working class. Right. Yeah. And it's still wild to me that it happened that way. But, like, they have a lot of, like, legitimate grievances. Their lives have mm-hmm. been destroyed, a lot of them. But they their anger about it is often misplaced, you know, which I find to be unfortunate, too. But he keys into all that stuff, too, with the, the xenophobia and all the other types of, like, bigotry and whatnot. And it's just, like, he just baked the perfect sort of F.U. cake for them. Yeah, um, he's trying to make a comeback. Do you think he's got a good shot? (sighs) (laughs) I mean, like, I guess. I don't know. Like, I'm also, I can't believe he's still, you know, at his age and the way he lives his life. And, you know, like, you know, I keep thinking, like, surely he's going to run down before too long. And that, but I don't know. I'm not ever going to, like, just fully count him out again, you know what I mean, after yeah. getting punched in the mouth the way I did in 2016. But, I mean, I certainly hope not. But then it's also like, well, who's his replacement on the right? Like, it could be somebody right. who has all his worst attributes but is, like, way more competent and whose brain works better, you know? And, like, that's scary to uh, think about. Well, look, I mean, I first, like everybody else, I first saw you on this device right here, my phone. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, Somebody, I think it was the... the the transgender bathroom yeah. bill that you did, which I think was the first time that you got mega viral. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just hear a little bit of that right now. What's up, y'all? Liver redneck here. We gonna do it again. Fired up, son. I've been seeing all these Facebook posts about transgender bathrooms, and every one of them comes down to the same shit. Well, hell, what's to stop some pervert from wrapping a skirt around his wiener and going in the ladies' room with my baby girl? I ain't having that. We gotta watch out for the kids, the kids, the kids. Meanwhile, these are the same motherfuckers that put Mountain Dew in sippy cups and beat a six-year-old with a wire hanger for standing in front of the TV during Dr. Oz. Y'all are so full of shit. What do you think is gonna happen? You do know that transgender people have existed forever, right? What bathrooms you think they've been using? And how many times you ever hear about what you're worried about happening, happening? Hardly not, never. Okay, so what was it? <laughs> That made you decide of all the issues in the world to take on. Why did you take on that issue? And why do you think it it, it went so viral? Well, uh, the honest story behind that is, so I had been doing stand-up for already like uh, almost six years at that point. I lived in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I was doing stand-up around the South. And it was going pretty okay. 
you know, and uh, and I had this bit that I would do on stage where I would talk about my accent and I would talk about how everybody hears my accent, assumes certain things about me, but I understand why. It's because the only time you ever see somebody in the media who sounds like me, it's always the same Bible thumping troglodyte at a, and this is so long ago, I would say at a tea party rally, you know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And then I would say, so the only thing I can think to do about that is I'm going to start going out in public and being just as loud and redneck as they are, but I'm going to say a bunch of really liberal stuff to try to balance the scales. And then I would like do examples of that. And I was doing that on stage mm-hmm. and I had talked to my comedian buddies about that, about like, you know, I've thought about making that into like an internet thing, doing that, but on the internet. And everybody I ever told that to was like, yeah, that's a good idea. You should do that. <laughs> but I had this, I had this thing in my head. I was like, I'll have to get a camera because, again, this was like back before phones were like quite good yeah. enough. I was like, I'll have to learn production and editing and all this stuff. I had these like all these barriers to entry in my head. And then what happened was in like April of 2016, all that transgender bathroom stuff was going on. And I saw this video that was going viral on the right. So like people that I went to high school with that on, you know, I was friends with on Facebook from high school were sharing this video and it had like 15 million views. And it was this pastor, this preacher in North Carolina who was like in the woods for some reason, standing in (laughs) front of his truck for some reason. And he's just holding his phone and he's just ranting at it about like, the evils of these transgender people in the bathroom with our daughters and all this stuff and <laughs> you know fire and brimstone type stuff and it's like not a joke in sight wasn't funny at all you know it was just <laughs> like hate-filled and it had millions of views and that's when it sort of clicked for me where i was like well if if this is what i'm trying to like make fun of right here which it is i don't need all that fan that would be a mistake like i should just i should do it the same way these guys do it i should just go out in the woods with my phone and just (laughs) yell at it and do it that way and once once that kind of clicked for me then i just i just did that and as far as why that subject matter it was just the big thing at the time and i thought it was so stupid i still think it's so (laughs) stupid so you know it came very naturally to me after that but that's sort of the origin story and it's always been funny to me thinking about that preacher and it's like i hope he if he ever sees him my videos pop up or anything it's like i hope he knows this is his fault or perhaps exactly. the lord's <laughs> fault i'm a mysterious ways type of case i guess because yeah, he, he led funny. directly to my career and everything which i think is funny <laughs> well, I, I think i think it is, it is funny and i just love it i love what you do and and i also like the fact that you know you you take on racial stuff yeah, and you take it on in a way that I think is completely unique. I mean, during the um, all the George Floyd stuff, you said what everybody should know, but I've never heard anybody say, which is that black people should probably get a thank you card every day that we don't riot. Is that how I right. feel about it? <laughs> yeah. you know? And uh, but you did this unbelievable take on. It. Let's hear, hear that real quick. I mean. White people catch all the shit for riding, but really, given the circumstances, they almost never do it, you know? But you can only push the people so far, and apparently they draw the line at wanton public murder at the hands of the law. And I, for one, am not going to criticize that. So, look, obviously, you know, there's a lot of pain in the country over all this policing stuff and, and pain in your heart. But why did you decide to take that one on? And just, just give me a little bit of the process you go through 
when it's time for you to take on something like this. I mean, we, we, we see the final product. We just see you like saying something perfect that we can all share. But in that situation in particular, what was going on for you? Well, so the first time that Black Lives Matter got really publicized as a movement and everything was also in like 2016, I think it was. And of course, there was pushback to it, All Lives Matter and all that type of stuff. And at that time, I was kind of incensed about it because I saw all your like stereotypical rednecks and stuff like siding with the cops, you know. And my take at the time was, since when do rednecks and cops get along? Like, that's, you know, that's news <laughs> to me. My whole life growing up, I was, like, taught. Now, I mentioned earlier, my mom's a little felonious, you know, but it wasn't just her. Like, I was, you don't trust the cops. They're not your friends. Because, I mean, you think about it, it's like every episode of, of the show Cops takes place in either, like, the ghetto or the trailer park. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> NASCAR got started with good old boys running moonshine from the cops. You know, Smokey and the Bandit, like, Smokey wasn't the hero of that there's a long tradition of this so i was like this is wild that apparently we're pro cop now just because it's been framed as cops versus black people and i think that's pretty messed up so that's what made me mad about it to begin with and then with the george floyd case in particular it was just you know so outrageous to me like something needs to happen because like this has got to stop and just briefly about the like the process so I see something, makes me mad, or I want to, like, you know, rant about or whatever. And then what I actually do is I treat it the same way as I do, like, a stand-up bit, even if it's more, like, sensitive material or whatever. It doesn't matter. I have the same, like, creative process, which is just that I just literally start ranting about it out loud alone, you know? <laughs> but, like, and I'll just – and I'll stop and I'll go back and I'll start over and whatever until it kind of, like, takes shape. And sometimes that takes 15 minutes sometimes or less. Sometimes it pretty organically just comes out and I'm like, that's it. And then I just turn my phone on and do it. And sometimes <laughs> it takes a little longer. But it rarely takes longer than, like, an hour, an hour and a half because those are like two minute clips, you know, but that's how I've always approached writing a stand up bit too. But with stand up, then you take it to the stage, see how people react to it and then hone it from there with these. I just yeah. record it, put it out into the ether and see what happens. It's, it takes some courage to do the stuff that you do. You could just do relationships. I mean, you're funny as hell. You could do relationship stuff. You could thread the middle, but you've decided to take on stuff that's actually pretty tough to take on. And I just wonder why. I mean, like, like what, what is it in your life and your background and your heart that makes you want to take these kind of risks with your platform? So first of all, I guess I'll, you know, circle back to the first question you asked me that I never answered and briefly answered, which is like, how, why am I, am I this way? And it's like, the, what I've always thought, but maybe I would have just been this way anyway, is I said my mom was in and out of jail. I was raised mostly by my dad. My dad had one one sibling, a younger brother, my Uncle Tim. My Uncle Tim was openly gay. So because of that, my dad was A, more open-minded, but B, also didn't mess with Jesus very much or at all. He didn't go to church at all. And so we also didn't have to go to church. I, I've always credited that. You know, like a lot of times I meet people, fans of mine at shows who are also from the rural South or whatever, and they want to ask me a lot, like, how do you deal with Thanksgiving dinner? Do you know what I mean? They're like, how do you deal mm -hmm. with, you know, I'm that, a lot of them are the blue sheep in a red family. You know what I'm saying? Uh -huh, and they're like, uh -huh. how do you deal with that? And I feel bad because like, I don't like that. Like, <laughs> I kind of was just raised to be this way. And I think those circumstances is what kind of led to that for me. And as far as like comedically speaking, 
I think part of it is just because all of my favorite comedians growing up always were the ones who like they might talk about relationship stuff, but they also talked about like real issues or whatever. Like the person who most directly inspired me to be a comedian was Chris Rock. Chris Rock's my all time favorite comic, mm -hmm. but also mm -hmm. like Dave Chappelle and George Carlin and Richard Pryor and all those guys back then who all my favorites were always the ones who like talked about real things or societal issues. So I always knew I wanted to do that. Too, because like I don't know how much comedy changes people's hearts and minds or anything, but I do think that it's like one of the primary, you know, purposes of comedy is to make it so you can laugh at something that might be hard to laugh at or whatever. And I've right, just right. that's how I've always felt about it. So that I was always drawn to that. And also, I was aware that I was aware before I ever started doing stand up that my whole thing sounding the way I do and being from where I'm from, but thinking the way I think about stuff. I've, I, I knew even before I ever started stand up that that would be like <laughs> novel and right, right. interesting and whatever. So I kind of just yeah. dove head first into it. I mean, look, it's, it's one thing if you're, you know, tooling around I-40, you know, stopping off in Jackson, Tennessee and getting uh, heckled or booed or whatever. But, you know, you're in a different role and world now. How do you think about your audience? What are you up to? Are you primarily trying to give aid and comfort to other Southern liberals? Are you trying to give coastal liberals a more Southern fried experience of what they already like? Or are you trying to convert people from red to blue? Like, how do you see your assignment? I'm definitely not trying to do the last thing just because I feel like that's a really tall order, you know, especially like nowadays. I've gotten some anecdotal evidence of that purportedly happening you know, people have told me about you know it's like oh, my uncle saw your video about the confederate flag and now he feels differently but that's happened like three times you know <laughs> the main thing like a yes i do like the sort of like commiserating aspect like finding my people other progressive southerners because we are out there but if i i don't have a mission but in so far as i do it's definitely to just sort of show the rest of the country a different side of like the south you know like because that that message i have gotten repeatedly from people who would be like you know you, you know i didn't know people like you existed you know someone <laughs> from san francisco will say to me stuff right, like right. that you know and uh so that's important to me too just showing people that the south like isn't a monolith you know what i mean mm -hmm. we're not all the same thing so i do care about that Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. On the Nintendo Switch system, there's so many worlds you can explore. Like Hyrule, where I can fight enemies and save the kingdom with Link. <laughs> that sounds adventurous. Or my very own island in Animal Crossing New Horizons, where I can fish whenever I want. 
the size of that thing! You can find even more worlds to explore on the Nintendo Switch system. Games rated E to E10+. Games and systems sold separately. Now, I live in California, raising my family out here. I went to school on the East Coast. There's a view, though, that the South is the sole repository of racism. Right. Uh, that, that somehow the South is so racist, and therefore everything else in the country is you know, basically fine. And uh, that just, as a Southerner, that just drives me nuts. Yes. No, I've always, and I have to watch it, you know, because like I can start to sound like I'm being an apologist for it or something. So I always want to make it clear. It's like, I'm not, I'm not saying the South doesn't have problems with race. It does. I'm not saying that stuff doesn't exist. It does. But it's just, it allows the rest of the country to point at one place and be like, that's right there. That's the racist part. That's where all the mm-hmm. racists are at. When it's like, racism is very much an American problem. You know, like I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this, uh, picture that went viral some guy was in a grocery store and they told him you have to have a mask on so he was like well okay and he went out to his truck and he came back in with a clan hood on he's like well this is the only thing i have to cover my face with and that like that clip or that picture went viral at the same time a picture went viral some people had called somebody to work on their hvac unit or something and he showed up wearing a a white power shirt and uh like just at on the job you know and both of those dudes were in california like rural california you know what i mean wow and like driving across the country between cities you see a lot of the same stuff no matter what state you're in and also like so I, I, I've told this story a lot, but just how like complicated and messed up the issue of racism is in this country. I was in Winter Park, Colorado, and I met this white lady who had been at my show, but this is like at a bar after my show. But So she's like a fan of mine. She's a self-professed progressive who had already mentioned to me that she grew up in like a suburb of Col- in Colorado that was like 99% white. She had previously mentioned that, right? Then later, she says... She drove through the South once on her way to Florida, and she couldn't believe how insanely racist it was. And so I said, uh, well, you know, actually, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine when people who are from a place that's 99% white talk about how racist the South is, because it's like, what do you even know about racism? You grew up in Ronald Reagan's dreamland. You know what I mean? Like, what, like right, right. What, you know, you don't know anything about it. And I thought I had really, really put my foot in my mouth for a second because this lady said, well, actually, I do know something about it because my daughter is half black. But then, Van, she said right after that, I swear to God, quoting verbatim, she goes, I do know something about that because my daughter is half black. But I mean, she doesn't act black, though. Like, you know, she, <laughs> yeah, she's like she she loves to read. She's a great student, all this stuff. And I was like, <laughs> she, I was like, what? <laughs> I, I said, that's the most racist thing I've heard in years, you know, and it came from a liberal white lady in Colorado. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just like there's this like. I don't know, this whole sort of aspect of American racism that just gets like ignored or excused by the perpetrators of it. And I think part of it is because they have a scapegoat for it, you know, in the South and you're more traditional types of racist. You know what I mean? Part of what I liked about growing up in the rural South, and I was born in 68, so I I grew up on the edge of of a small town, but it was the 70s and 80s. They were actually trying to desegregate. Now, there were some people, you know, going to the white flight private schools, but you had a, I mean, I went to school with a bunch of white kids, um, a bunch of black kids as well. And I think what's happened now is that the, the resegregation of America is pretty severe. You know, I mean, I don't care who you vote for. 
if you're a white person, you, you probably just don't see a whole bunch of black folks or, or, or Latinos as peers very often in the course of your day. Right. And so I think that allows for all kind of mischief to just exist in places you wouldn't expect it because you just don't actually have real interaction. Maybe people are like talking to each other on social media, but it's not a real interaction. But I think all this hurts the progressive cause overall. And I just want to talk with you in, in closing about that. I feel that progressives, liberals, we're concerned about racism. We're concerned about you know racial injustice. We haven't figured out a way to communicate about it that is effective for people who are outside of our ranks. You know, we're constantly kind of reshuffling the deck on language and pronouns, yeah. all sort of stuff. I understand the point of it, but it seems like it's making it harder for us to communicate to the people who might actually be more open-hearted or open-minded if we didn't seem so weird. Yes, 100%. I agree with that completely. I think that, like, we have this tendency to, like, and I don't know if it's because we have higher, like, standards for the conduct of people or something on the left. It's like, but we have this tendency to, yeah, kind of infight and and debate and you're not a good enough liberal if you don't do or say this or whatever else whereas like i, f- I feel like for the most part on that side that don't happen like they <laughs> like they stick together over there yeah. you know what i mean thick mm-hmm. or thin and that's uh i think one of the reasons that they often win you know when it comes down to it like we should do better about sticking together and not tearing ourselves apart over these these types of differences uh, my favorite joke recently has been what's the difference between liberals and cannibals Cannibals don't eat their own friends and family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, the infighting man. It's yeah. Brutal on our side. But um, just, just take it a, a step further. I mean, you do have people who are well-intentioned, good progressives, who don't know how to communicate outside of their own small coastal bubble. You do a brilliant job of doing that. And, and all of us are trying, but no, nobody's doing as well as you are. What advice would you give to people who are trying to communicate these values outside of their own small circle? I think there's a thing that happens where people on both sides meet somebody who's on the other side and they immediately place them on the extreme, like on the poles of either ideology without thinking about it really just like automatically like the the last time i was in my hometown this one of my best friends from high school came up and he's like a hard-working guy wife and kids you know tax-paying red-blooded american he's a good dude and he came up to me he's like you know me man like i you know, I whatever, I take care of my family, I do all this. And he's like, I just don't understand why you think I shouldn't be able to own a gun if I want to. And I was like, I don't think that. Like, I've, <laughs> I've never said that, you know. I don't. I was like, I think there are some people in this country who right. should not own a gun, you know, yeah. who have, like, mental problems or whatever. It's like, the, and, and we should do a better job of keeping that from happening if possible. And he right. was like, well, hell, I agree with that. And I was like, right. We pretty much think the same thing about this issue. You know what I mean? But like right. you automatically assume that it's the polar opposites. And I think that happens with everything. And, and with most things, most Americans are not really that far apart. But yeah, we just focus on the polls, which I think is, you know, counterproductive. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and I think that, uh, you know, I think you have to be like bilingual, trilingual, quadrilingual in English. Yeah. Like when I say climate. I automatically, when I'm talking about climate change, I automatically put myself in the category of liberals, no matter what else I have to say about it. Right. You say conservation, right? It's a different, it's a different conversation. You could be talking about literally the same thing. So I think part of the thing is that we all are speaking English, but we're speaking different tribal languages politically, yes. and just to be, we got to be more facile in how we, you know, just even talk to each other. And that's one of the things I, you know, I love everything that you do. 
because you you always find a way to make our ideas and our values with those of us who are progressive more relatable. And I think that for the people who are maybe more conservative, you're speaking at least in a language they can understand. Even if they disagree, they may have a better shot at at least getting where we're coming from. Yeah, I even like doing stand up early on. Other comics sometimes would say to me, I would do some bit. I would talk about abortion or something like that in like Knoxville or something. And other comics would be like, I I have no idea how you got away with that, you know, or whatever. And I was like. I literally think it's just because I sound like them. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, it's it's different. Like, if I was, like, some New York comic coming down here and talking about that, it would not fly. But it just plays differently when they kind of, mm-hmm. like, I can tell immediately, like, oh, this guy's, you know, one of us. Now, a lot of times people see me on the Internet and they're like, He's clearly fake. This is clearly a New York actor who's doing a character. That's what this is, you know, like, and that, no. those are the things that drive me crazy the most, which I think is in itself a little rednecky because it's like, you can say whatever you want, make personal threats to me or whatever, but nobody's going to say I'm not white trash, you it. you know what I mean? But like, uh, Growing up where and how I did, I never thought in a million years I would have to defend being a redneck to anybody. <laughs> Ever. Ever. Yeah, most of my life it's been something I've had to apologize for. You know, I like, because, I mean, look, yes, clearly I'm a different kind of redneck, all right? But I still am one. I can't help it. Tyler's raised, man. Love drinking beer, love football, love my truck, love my mama. But yeah, so again, some people you just can't do anything with. But yes, I, I do think I can, like, you know, speak to them on their level a lot of times. Because, I mean, because that is my background. I am one of them. My whole family's still there and everything, and that just makes a difference. You know, you, you did mention your mom a couple times. Yeah. And um, addiction is in my family as well, more on the alcohol side than the pill side. That's such a big common ground area, red, yeah. blue, black, white, brown. Uh, first of all, how, how, is she, how is she doing now? Is she, is she still struggling? Is she, has she got under control yet? or Well— She's doing good as far as drugs are concerned. She is clean. But, I mean, you know, as with a lot of drug addicts, my mom also has genuine, like, mental health issues. But she's, like, doing well generally, much better than she was when I was younger, you know. But she'll always have some issues here and there, you know what I mean? But like you said, that's definitely a common ground type of area when it comes to, like, talking to people on the other side and stuff. That's something to, you know, like taking care of your, uh, you know, your pill-addicted nephew or whatever is one of those subjects because at this point everybody knows somebody that's been affected by it. Like, you don't have any idea how much folks have in common until you start talking to people. Right. Um, Like, you know, you you see a, a white guy from the South, you assume, He's, he's never had a problem in his life. He's just tooled around his truck being racist. And that kind of stereotyping is a part of why I think it's hard for us to really come together sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's the like really empathy is the, the number one thing to me. Like if more yeah. people went out of their way to actually put themselves in other people's shoes or just think like if this was happening to me or this conversation was about me, then how would I feel about it? I think a lot of things would change. But so many people just never get to that point in the first place, you know. Yeah, I, I agree 100 percent. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door.
Well, I think we can all agree that uh, Trey Crowder is an American original. He is a distinct voice uh, with a distinct point of view, and he's just brilliant at communicating you know, what he believes in a way that stands out. And I think what struck me was he almost didn't do it. He almost didn't do it. He thought he was going to have to have, I guess, like, I don't know, a TV studio and cameras and lights and makeup artists and all kind of, I guess, dancing bears. I don't know what he thought he was going to have to have. And it turned out what he needed was already in his pocket the whole time. He already had the the gift. He already had the experience. He already had the point of view. And I, I think we should take that very seriously because I think there's a lot of people in the Uncommon Ground audience, possibly you, that is... You've been holding yourself back, waiting for this condition to change, waiting for, for this class to be taken, for, for this thing. I, I think we are at a point now where people just need to go for it. You know the book you've been wanting to write. You know the song you've been wanting to record. You know the project you wanted to start or the business you wanted to explore. You know, you already know, you already know, you already know. If, if you look back at your journal, from three years ago and five years ago and 10 years ago, it's already in there Why you're here. And I hope that not only do you take from Trey his comedic genius, there's a, a human dimension to everybody that makes it. And it's just that they tried, they just tried. And you know, people always ask me, well, what can I do? What can I do? How can I make the world better? You know, tell me what to do. And I would say, you already know. Do that thing that you're supposed to do, that you're scared of. Do that. And you have no idea if it's going to work or not, but it's sure not going to work if you don't try. I can tell that Trey Crowder wants to be understood. He wants to communicate. He wants it to land. And that's a different place to stand than just wanting to, to speak, just wanting to have your voice out there, just wanting to kind of fire off your points. You know, there's something happening, I think, where we're getting a little bit lazy, maybe because it's so easy to communicate now with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all this stuff. We're getting a little bit lazy about, yeah, but how is this going to be heard? How is this going to be received? How is this going to land for someone else who, you know, I, I can't afford to write off? I think Trey Crowder is just a great example of somebody. He's looking for converts. He's looking for people that he can encourage and maybe went over. He says he's not trying to win people over, but I think he's at least leaving the door open for someone to come across. I think we need to spend less time looking for heretics and people who have run afoul of our own, you know, orthodoxies and our various political parties. There's too much of that trying to chase out the heretics and keep everything pure. There's too few people who are really leaving the door open for converts to come on and to at least, if not agree, at least better understand and there are very few people in the country, of any, who are doing a better job of that than Trey Crowder. I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. See you next time. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. 
Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Adesua Agbanile, Sundus Hassan Noli, and Lindsay Cradlewell. Our managing producers are Lauren D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Moraes, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Taylor Williamson, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwindeman, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkneen, Vanessa Rebert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jackman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I feel like I was blindsided. Because it's a competition show. From the producers of Jury Duty and The Bachelor. We have scoured the earth for the 14 greatest reality contestants that were available during our production window. Comes a reality competition show about reality competition shows. Nobody has dared to find out who is the actual best at just being on a reality show. I'm your host, comedian Daniel Tosh. Is winner go home. Each episode, our contestants will face new challenges that will test their strength and lack of life skills for a chance to win two hundred million dollars. $200,000. Prepare, because it's about to be ugly crying. Lots of fighting. Tasha, I have to defend myself. Celebrating 25 years of reality TV with your favorites. I have diarrhea. You cannot do this to me. What in gay hell have I got myself into? The Goat, premiering on Freebie and Prime Video on May 9th. 